This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, listeners, for joining us once again for our weekly edition of the Retail Politics Podcast, where we will talk about political issues of today. And we've got a wonderful guest today, Ms. Carol Lennig, a Pulitzer Prize winner with the Washington Post and author of the wonderful new book called Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. How are you, my friend? I'm delighted to join you, Jerry. Just really happy to be here. Uh, Well, we appreciate you joining us. So it used to be called the Secret Service, but after your book, it's the not-so-secret service. It's uh, (laughs) You went back all the way to the history, and it is an interesting book because you really um, delve into um, to this agency, which really was kind of a secret service. Now, people didn't really know a lot about it. And I think your jumping point was the April 2012 uh, incident in Cartagena, Colombia, uh, when they were down there uh, fronting, uh, getting ready for uh, President Obama's visit. Uh, was that the was that the one? Yeah, you know that incident. Um, even though my book kind of covers, you know. 11 presidencies and, you know, 65 years, maybe more. Um, That was really the way I entered the Secret Service was that scandal. Uh, It broke uh, one Friday night, a colleague of mine that I partner with on investigative stories from time to time, he broke the story. He was on the White House beat at the time that a bunch of agents had been sort of, you know, hush, hush, rushed back and flown home from Colombia because they were under investigation for turning a presidential trip into like a Las Vegas bachelor party, Um, drinking, getting totally smashed, bringing prostitutes back to their hotel rooms the day before President Obama was supposed to arrive. That's really how I got my my feet wet, so to speak, in the subject of the Secret Service. And then I, I had no idea where it would lead, but it led to me getting a real PhD in that in that agency. Well, it was interesting because I was working the Sunday morning desk at the New York Post when that broke. And I remember being stunned. I remember thinking, it sounds like a bunch of frat boys. I mean, and and you never really heard anything about the Secret Service. And I think that's what was so shocking to me. Um, and um, the f- interesting thing about your book is that it showed this was a culture. This wasn't a, a separate incident. And um, it, it was a frat boy culture. And I think the three words that really stood out in your book to me was arrogant beyond belief. And that was exactly what these guys were. Why did that culture exist, do you think? Oh, such a good question, Jerry. You know, I remember the, of course, because I was covering it in real time, the congressional testimony of the director of the Secret Service at that time, right? Like a million investigations were launched in the wake of this shocker of an event, right? How could the men who protect the president do something so goofy and so dangerous that would, you know, not just embarrass them and their agency, but also, you know, put the president's life in higher risk because they're bringing strange women whose names they don't know while they're completely soused 
to their rooms where they have security plans and weapons and whatever. And so in that testimony, I remember Director Sullivan saying, oh my gosh, I'm so shocked. This kind of thing never <laughs> happened. I'm shocked there's gambling in the casinos. And, and, and I totally, I totally believed him at the time. I was like, wow, he looks really surprised. But when I did more reporting, I found out you're right. It was a culture. The service had partied hard for decades. They had worked hard and partied hard. And that was sort of an interesting trade-off in their, in their lives. They sacrificed so much, you know, they sacrificed children's birthdays and anniversaries with their wives. I, I met an agent who had to skip being the best man in his best friend's wedding mm. because of a mm. last minute assignment. Wow. Um, just, just a really horrible personal sacrifices that they make because there's no, there's no saying no to the assignment. And the trade-off that some of them took was, well, when we go on these foreign trips, it'll be like a perk. It'll be mm. like, It'll be like a big party. And yeah. for some of them, it became a chance to have, you know, a double life, like mm -hmm. women in every mm -hmm. port. Mm -hmm. um, there, I think the reason was the secrecy, right? The, the agency had become so secret about everything that was national security related that they started to become secretive mm -hmm. and arrogant about personal misconduct. And, and one of the great phrases, and I remember this happening when the story broke, was wheels up. Tell our listeners what wheels up meant. Yeah, so, you know, it's funny. Uh, you and I have a friend in common, Mary Elizabeth DeAngelis, and uh, we lovingly know her as BIP. But I remember when she and she was covering cops in North Carolina and we were reporters together in the Charlotte Observer. And we, I first heard the term wheels up, which was a bunch of cops that we met. were talking about the president at the time. This is decades ago visiting. And as soon as air force one left, they had a wheels up party, local law enforcement and the secret service agents behind basically just, you know, had this huge drink fest because the president's gone. They don't have to worry about anything anymore. They can celebrate that safe, successful mission. But what I learned in the course of investigating Cartagena was, and that, that terrible scandal, was that wheels up wasn't a one-time thing. It was a regular thing. And, and it was combined with wheels up rings off. Oh, uh, Cartagena yeah. was this moment where, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Guys, guys got to party and, and say, Hey, we're done with this assignment or the president's not here yet. The man's not here. Um, we can enjoy this, this sort of out of town conference. Oh, um, but the rings off part was we don't have to act as mm. if we're married because we're very far from our yeah. homes. Yeah. And um, it's, it's kind of interesting because, you know, we talked about this being a culture and there's a great segment in your book because everybody's fascinated with the John F. Kennedy um, assassination. And the guys were actually Secret Service guys were actually out the night before the assassination partying. I think it was, you know, to well into the morning. Um, they were hung over. Uh, when they were on that Dallas trip. And um, I, I'm, I'm curious whether you think that them being hungover had anything to do with assassination, because I read it more that it was Kennedy who said, hey, guys, back off. I want to be with the people. And a lot of presidents said that they didn't like these guys being too close because they wanted to jump into the crowds. And he was basically saying, look, don't don't make me look like a king. Don't make me look like 
you know, some, what would, what do you, do you think the hangover thing had anything to do with it? You know, you summarized that so well, I can tell you really did read the book. Um, but this idea of, of why Kennedy was killed, what, who do we blame is complicated. I, I think that the drinking the night before, no doubt slowed the reflexes of these agents. The director at the time uh, was a huge champion and protector of those agents that day. He did not want them to be tagged for life with the death of a president. The, the sad thing is he couldn't prevent that. They all felt it. They all owned it. It was a it was a gaping wound for all of their lives. And in interviewing them, I, I, I you know I was near tears listening to how painful that experience was for them. How guilty they felt about it. Uh, but no question, a, a large number of them were out drinking late into the night, hard liquor, and they didn't go to sleep, some of them until 2, 3, and 5 a.m., and they were up again at 8. So um, you can't say that a, a man can react or a woman can react with incredible reflexes and instincts after being asleep <laughs> uh, for just a few hours and and a lot of alcohol in their system. But then there are other factors too, Jerry. You know, you can't just blame that. The other things are that the agent that day who was driving the car pumped the brakes at the first sound of shots, mm. um, didn't really realize That's it was shots, wasn't mm. really trained. If he if if Greer had just kept driving uh, and sped up the way agents are trained to do now, it's very possible that Oswald wouldn't have gotten off the, the last and final shot that went through Kennedy's skull. Uh, you know, at first he was just hit sort of in the side of his throat and he could still talk and he was still conscious. But when he was hit in the side of the head, mm. it was over. Um, the The other factor, of course, is that the agents didn't really have a very good routinized protocol for dealing with going through a city. I mean, they were going through a city where there were a million places mm -hmm. somebody could shoot at the president and they weren't carefully vetting tips that were coming in mm -hmm. and information that was coming in in the weeks before the assassination. And you were mentioning they didn't check the buildings like they should have and, and gone through the pre-checks and made sure the buildings were clear and all that stuff. Yeah, they do all that now like nobody's business. They also didn't take in the information that came out of Florida where a group, a guy who was sort of the uh, informal leader of, an infor of a white supremacist group and very anti-Kennedy, anti-Kennedy because of his civil rights stand. Um, talked with an FBI informant about how there were plans to kill President Kennedy with a high-powered rifle from a, a, a high building. So they they didn't really realize that that threat was out there, even though they should have. Yes, and um, it was kind of interesting. One of the great things about the book, too, is you really gave some insight into the presidents. You talked about agents covering the presidents. And one of the things that stuck out with me, and it kind of raises two questions. One was when President Obama said to them, you do not have enough women on this staff. And you know, <laughs> you know, if women were in charge of that agency, none of this stuff happens, right? I mean, none of it happens. I mean, you know, they talk about all the battles we have. The gender 
gender battle has been going on since Adam and Eve, if you believe, you know, and I, I am convinced that um, if women weren't on this planet, men would erect it in six months. And if that, you know. <laughs> but talk about, um, you know, that was a very interesting observation that Obama had. And has that changed at all? Not really. I mean, it's still an alpha male agency in its DNA. Um, you know, I was interviewing a woman who was an agent back in the 70s, and she said, you know, her big assignment was essentially trying to behave like a man because that was the way to get along. Mm. And what shocked me was interviewing a very senior supervisor uh, later down the road in the in who was working in the Trump campaign. She said the same thing. You know, she had to pretend to be a man in the sense of trying to drink as hard, trying to punch as hard. Um, being macho was sort of a, a, a metric for whether or not you were a good agent in many of the leaders' eyes in that agency. And what's interesting, too, is, you know, Obama tells director, President Obama tells director Julia Pearson, the first female director, you just need more women. This is after he gets briefed by her about yet another drunken episode by the agents in the Netherlands where some agent, an agent passes out in the hotel where the president is going to be staying, passes out in the lobby, which doesn't look too good for the American delegation. Um, But he tells her this and, you know, here she is trying to kind of bear down on this behavior, but she has a fight on her hands because behind the scenes, all sorts of, I guess you'd call them peers, but they're really foes. They're really frenemies in the agency are trying to get her sacked. You know, they're trying to leak information that they hope will be unflattering to her. They're hoping to get her out of the job because she has recently fired a, a deputy supervisor and re, well, not fired him, forgive me, fired him from a particular assignment and reassigned him because he couldn't get control of this bad behavior on his team. And she wanted to require consequences for that, but, but it backfired on her. And it's kind of interesting. You mentioned being in Charlotte and, and covered the uh, police there. And of course I've covered them in Baltimore and, and Orlando and then, Always drama on a police department. Always drama. I mean, always complaints, uh, gossip. It was. It was always. They were the worst in the city workforce on drama. I mean, and in reading your book, this agency like were like high school teen girls. I mean, yeah, <laughs> and and it reflected in the leadership because you saw so much turnover in the leadership. Was the leadership unable to just get a handle on these things? You know, there are no, there were, I found that there were some real standout directors of the Secret Service and standout supervisors, just really amazing people in terms of what they were willing to sacrifice and give for the cause of keeping a stable democracy, protecting the president's life so this country is stable and safe. The things they gave up, the, the, the vigilance, just amazing. I would I would crumple uh, doing their work for a day, honestly. But unfortunately, there were quite a few leaders who were more focused on protecting their reputations and burnishing the brand as a way to burnish their own image. Mm-hmm. And so quietly there there grew this kind of cancer where 
They didn't admit that there were problems. They didn't mm -hmm. admit that mm -hmm. they didn't have the resources. Mm -hmm. They didn't admit that there was this incredibly bad behavior going on right under their noses because that would call attention to the agency. That might hurt them. That might hurt their power and their reputations, their chance for another great job down the road that pulled in six or seven figures. And it was just like a long running, quiet cover up. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting, the other thing about Obama, and we're talking about a lot of the problems with the agency, but you've mentioned some of the dedication. And one of the things that fascinated me, too, was that Obama never had an assassination attempt, even though when he was elected, there were so many threats. I think at, at one point you said 30,000 threats had come in. How did they protect him so well? You know, um, it's a really good question. The director, Mark Sullivan, who was uh, leading the agency at the time of Obama's election and inauguration, uh, in some ways really, you know, was on high alert for how historic and also how toxic this moment was because, okay, Obama's going to be the first black president in American history. And the threats are flooding over the gates uh, online and in person and in correspondence and in white supremacist chat groups, those dark web groups. There's all sorts of talk about how to kill him. You know, people in grocery stores uh, in rural areas are putting up signs uh, that aren't very funny about a contest to kill the president uh, elect. It's really bizarre. And so he asks, Sullivan asks for tens of millions of dollars to try to like reinforce the, the perimeter bubble, try to create additional resources, cameras, fencing, etc., to harden the perimeter around the White House. And he gets it temporarily and then he loses it in the next congressional budget battle. It's just a terrible tug of war. The, you asked the question, how'd they protect him better? They let him out of the building less. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> You're not allowed out this week, Barack. You're yeah, grounded. <laughs> and he really, it's funny. He really, he really chafed at it. And he, he, had, and just a funny story is like, he didn't, he had kind of a silent agreement with the service. He's like, don't tell my wife about all these threats unless it's really important. You know, let's not talk about the threats because when he was going to run for office, she was on tenor hooks and, and fearful about him being assassinated. Uh, she met with Coretta uh, Scott King to talk about what she went through. And Michelle Obama was very worried about that being a real possibility of him being killed in office. Uh, the service did everything they could to make sure he was safe. But I must tell you, there were assassination attempts against him when he was a candidate. Um, they were foiled. They were blocked because they were not very well organized. But there were multiple attempts on his life. Uh, one of them was the service ultimately concluded it was a, a poorly hatched plan. But some folks went to a convention gathering in Arizona, forgive me, Colorado, and they brought a bunch of weapons and they were, you know, high on meth and talking about how they were going to find Obama and kill him. And ultimately they were, they never were successful and they were arrested. Uh, 
but there were a lot of, there were a lot of people plotting. <laughs> and I remember there's a great story, and I'm not going to tell because I want people to read the book to find out. But uh, Michelle Obama was in a hotel, and I think it was in Los Angeles, and a homeless guy reached her, <laughs> reached her her suite. So we won't tell that whole story because it's actually an interesting <laughs> story. Um, okay. But um, yeah, um, the um, the history of it. You know, I was uh, it was very interesting. I I was in high school and we had career day, and I don't know how they did this, but they had a secret service agent in one of the rooms, and we all went in like, yeah, man, we want to do this. And uh, he was interested because I guess back then it was part of the Treasury Service, and um, he had told us like, well, it's kind of a boring job. You just sit outside and wait for counterfeiters to come out. We were like, ah, we ain't going to do that. But it's changed, right? It, in Homeland Security, <laughs> it's changed. Um, talk about the structure of it right now. Yeah. You know, the service is um, is so much more complicated and so much uh, has such a much bigger job than protecting the president. That's what we all know, right? We The guys with the suits looking trim and fit and with the earpieces, and kind of sun, dark sunglasses and not very friendly, <laughs> yes. um, staring off into the into the uh, atmosphere, looking for guys with guns. And but there, the agency has so many other assignments. I mean, they protect almost forty other people. We we now, as the Secret Service, protect the grandchildren of the president, the stepchildren of the vice president, uh, various national security officials. The service also protects um, Super Bowls and Olympics, any major event that is designated a, a likely target of terrorist attack. They protect, obviously, the inauguration, big events like that. They're also in charge of, you know, studying active shooters who attack schools because hmm. a lot of the hmm. people, the kinds of people that shoot up schools are the same kind of people who right. try to kill presidents. Right. They also are in, involved in their legacy mission, the way they were founded in 1865, which was to investigate counterfeiters and stop them, break up counterfeit rings. They still investigate financial crimes, cyber hacking, counterfeiting, and especially in field offices around the country. They're, they just have so many jobs and they're stretched too thin, to be honest. They're also responsible for protecting foreign leaders here mm -hmm. in the United States, diplomats, ambassadors, and they make sure that they safely leave the country, uh, visit and leave the country and, and are still alive when they leave. Mm -hmm. uh, all the foreign leaders who come to the U.S. every September come to New York and mm -hmm. travel around the country for the United Nations General Assembly. The problem for the agency is they have too much to do. Even yeah. though it's a larger, a much larger agency than yeah. it was when Kennedy was killed, their mission is, it dwarfs their size. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Why is Congress not supportive of this agency? It's a, it is such a good question and it's the one that has to be cracked and it has to be faced. And I hope as do my sources that the Biden administration, you know, amid all the other things they've got to deal with, that they, they are, that they tackle this and they face this question. First off, presidents don't like to ask Congress for money for their own protection. They just historically have been allergic to that. The idea being, Hey, we're men of the people. We're not Royals. We want, um, we don't need money for our own protection from the citizenry. It just looks bad politically, right? Right. Um, 
And then the other thing is that secret service directors, I was told by, you know, very senior people in the agency, their, their bosses that they advised on a regular basis, the directors didn't want to ask for hundreds of millions of dollars to modernize and to upgrade and mm-hmm. keep up with the modern threats that presidents face and that the nation faces because doing so would be unpopular with Congress, Mm -hmm. unpopular with presidents, and ultimately would be a kind of, you know, very clear admission that the secret service isn't really up to par right now, Mm -hmm. that, that the safety issues are unaddressed. If you need a hundred or $500 million, then you probably aren't doing everything you can do right now. And that's true today. Yeah. And uh, we were mentioning about keeping Barack and, and President Obama in the White House, but there was also great um, stories, uh, not so great, actually, of, of uh, agents covering up, in a sense, for Clinton and Kennedy when they had all these women and they were they were doing all this shuffling around of all these women. And um, in a sense, they basically just kind of turned turned a blind eye to it. They let, they let women in and, and said, Oh, Hey, that's, that's just the president. And you know, we don't have nothing. We can't do anything about that. But <laughs> it played a big role in the Lewinsky scandal because um, there was a lot of consternation about her coming and going. Has that process changed at all? Can, I don't see Joe Biden doing this, uh, but I mean, is there been rules in place now that says, Hey, Here's the standard, state of the standard. Hi, there are really not very clear rules on this issue. Um, I think about when you put this question about the Clinton era, you know, now we all know Monica Lewinsky was sort of sneaking into the White House regularly on Saturday mornings and midday to visit with the president and for various sexual interludes in his office privately with nobody looking and that the secret service was pretty aware (laughs) of how frequently she was a visitor. And some of them were gossiping amongst themselves uh, that they knew this was not work related, that this had to be the president's girlfriend. Uh, That just was too strange. You know, a woman showing up with papers all the time in a tight dress. And um, (laughs) it's a clear sign. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, not that I haven't worn a tight dress in my life. Yeah. But anyway. We won't talk about those pictures. (laughs) Right. But it was just too strange, right? Always on a Saturday, always having like the president's secretary come out to the guard post so that Monica didn't have to be signed in. There was no record that they all knew there was something up. Um, As for, for, their view of it. I think one way to to answer this is to use the grand jury testimony of Larry Cockle. He was a real standout supervisor in the Secret Service, eventually became the deputy director of the agency. Also um, one of the first Black agents to, to reach that level, just pretty amazing guy. And he had been President Clinton's detail leader for much of the time that Monica Lewinsky was having this affair with the president. And he didn't know this was happening in large part because he wasn't at the White House on Saturdays, (laughs) Um, but, but he didn't realize what was going on. But in his grand jury testimony, he said under oath that, you know, it wasn't his job to 
assess whether or not the president was making extramarital overtures to young women on the White House staff, or it wasn't his assignment to keep women who weren't his wife out of, you know, the the White House kitchen where they were, you know, smooching and doing other things. He stressed to the grand jury that his assignment was making sure the president was safe. And if if he had done that, if he had screened the people and he had assured that the individuals meeting with him had been screened by the White House, keep in mind, Monica Lewinsky was a White House intern, so she had been screened, mm-hmm. later a Pentagon official. If he had done that, he was doing his job protecting the president. That was his central role. He's not there as judge. He's not there as moral high ground. He's there as security professional. And I'm going to say that's pretty much the way the voters always looked at it, too, is like, hey, as long as he's doing his job, I don't care what he does on, you know, on the side. Well, some people felt that way. You know, it depends on if you liked Bill Clinton. If you liked Bill Clinton, you didn't care that much that he was um, sleeping around with other women. If you didn't like Bill Clinton, you you know, this was right? <laughs> this was a horrible crime, um, and it need and it and he needed to be impeached. So it really depends on your political persuasion. And um, one of the things you started off the book with, and and I think it's something that people don't realize about the media. So when you take on an agency like this and you write things that aren't welcome um and people say oh you're just out to get them you're the media it's a gotcha but um in the beginning and and i think you know haven't been a reporter for a long time we think this way and and i don't think people realize you said i'm tearing the agency in, in a way you said i'm tearing the agency down to build it back up you know the goal is to not make these people embarrassed it the goal is to make it better uh has it gotten better since you're reporting uh oh my gosh it is a, a, in some respects this is a heartbreaker for me because there are ways in which the agency has gotten better um mostly through humiliation i mean when i reported you know almost like once every two months about some horrifying scandal, you know, the number two leader of the protection team for the White House returning drunk in a car to the White House and driving over a a suspicious package investigation, you know, the, uh, you know, coming home drunk from a, yeah, the, the agent who got drunk in, in, the Florida Keys with a group of his buddies and threw up all over the Secret Service van and and another one who ended up getting in an accident with a tractor trailer all all the night before uh, they were supposed to be protecting President Obama and his family for a vacation in the Keys. You know, after a series of these events, the service leadership started to be like, okay, she's figuring all this stuff out. We got to get this to stop. (laughs) Um, As for like the actual structure of the agency, I don't think there has been the kind of improvement that the agents deserve. Sources that I have that are still there tell me there's still sort of papering over the bigger problems. The bigger problems are they, they their mission is too large. The, 
nobody wants to say no to this bifurcated mission of having a bunch of people investigate counterfeit crimes and cyber hacking and financial crimes while also protecting 40 plus people. Uh, Nobody wants to admit that they need to modernize all of their systems and it's going to take billions of dollars. And the president right now has his hands full with a lethal pandemic that's resurging because of an incredibly powerful variant that's working its way through the the unvaccinated population like, you know, a, a killer beetle. And he's got a lot of problems to deal with. And the Secret Service is probably fairly low to middle on his priority list. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how about the alpha male, the, you know, the boys club um, culture? Has that gotten any better? Well, there have been less sort of, um, you know, bimbo eruptions, so to speak, or uh, I, that's probably the wrong term. There have been less, there have been less bachelor party eruptions. Um, but, but I don't know that that means they're not happening, uh, only that I'm not reporting on it and others are reporting uh, increasingly. So it's not rings on yet. It's not rings on. I don't on know yet. if it's rings on yet. I can't say with definitiveness. I wish I could, Jerry. Um, many of the people who I lean on for information suggest to me that there hasn't been a massive supervisor change and unless there are changes at the top, then that culture is going to be either tolerated or papered over and covered up. And um, yes, it's a, it's a, it's just amazing. I mean, it's the Secret Service, and we've always held them up to be, um, you know, such a uh, such a. I guess a respected agency, which is, is, is what's kind of difficult about reading the book. And, uh, you know, we, we talk about, uh, you talked a lot about the drinking and that's very, very prevalent. I mean, and it's pretty, pretty standard for them. And we come from a business where there was a lot of drinking. I mean, that's how people blew off steam. Um, has there been any effort to create rehabilitation programs, get them some assistance as it comes to either psychological or or particularly drinking um, or addiction of any kind? The service has has offered a lot of, you know, what you'd call the standard federal government employee assistance programs. Um, However, there's a big problem for national security officials like the Secret Service agents and officers in seeking that kind of help. As soon as they do, it raises a question about their security clearance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, The security clearance process is one where alcohol abuse uh, or even just alcohol dependence, right? Uh, And I agree with you. The reporting profession has ample examples of this being a problem. You work too hard. You end up partying too hard when you have the time. And Unfortunately, if you've got an if you've got a top secret security clearance, yeah. alcohol and substance use and abuse can disqualify you from your job. Wow, so it's really hard. It's a that. hard yeah. thing. It's a hard thing to admit. Yeah. I remember there's some sad stories about this actually um, back in the day. So the agents who were with Kennedy when he was killed, 
a lot of them fell into alcoholism and you totally can understand why Mm -hmm. and battled that. Um, Some of them openly have, have talked about their fight with this uh, like Clint Hill and some of them have, have suffered it privately. There was one agent who uh, suffered a pretty severe case of alcoholism and, and was found by his fellow agents after he shot himself. Wow. Uh, And he had needed help. And a lot of other people who were his peers told me that it was one of their great disappointments. They knew he needed help and wasn't asking for it. And they weren't forcing him to get it. And, and that was the end. Boy, that is a fascinating dichotomy though. I mean, I, I never even thought about that, that, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's like going to a priest for confession, right? They're not supposed to tell, but wow, you know, the danger of that happening or, you know, you know, having that information leak out. And again, you're right. If they say, Hey, I need help. Um, then, you know, because of their security issues, that's uh, that's difficult. Well, this is wonderful. I really enjoyed um, the chat. The book was wonderful. Um, what's going to be uh, next for Carol Lenny? What's the next project for you? <laughs> you know, uh, right now I have my eyes trained on, you know, returning to the amazing investigative team at the Washington Post where that, that's been my home for a long time. I love working with those colleagues and editors and I feel like there's a lot still to learn about January 6th. So I'm going to, I'm going to dig into that. That's a great one. That's a great one. And that is rich, rich, rich uh, with material. And I'm, I'm, I'll be looking forward to seeing that from you. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Uh, blessings to you and your family and definitely say hi to mom for me. And we will be back <laughs> next week. For Thanks, another, Jerry. You're welcome. <laughs> we will be back next week for another thrilling edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. We want to thank our technical producer, Brad Maybe, the Wizard of Pods, our executive producer, Mike Gugat, Dave, the announcer, and our contributing voice talent, John One Take Terzis, the voiceover Tampa Bay. And until we meet again next week, always remember to read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career, covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.